Father, it's always good just to be still for a few uh, moments and to reflect. It's just good to be quiet. It's good uh, to be without noise or um, radios or background music. We lead pretty hectic lives. A lot of responsibilities, uh, a lot of pressures, a lot of weight on shoulders. And in the midst of that, we're reminded that uh, the Lord Jesus said, for this reason I say to you, don't worry about your life. How much time we spend worrying about our lives. There, there are plenty of things to worry about. Uh, We're, we're watching, um, we're, we're watching a, a nation uh, seemingly being dismantled before our eyes. And we shake our heads and we, we see uh, principles that have served us well for generations being ignored. We see uh, foolishness in uh, policies and in uh, Social engineering. We see an economy that uh, is sputtering because there's no confidence. There has to be more to an economy than printing money. It has to be based on something. You address all of this in your word. And when a nation gets away from you, we get in trouble. Any nation gets in trouble. Israel got in trouble. Judah gets in trouble. Um, they got in trouble. We get in trouble. Greece gets in trouble. The EU gets in trouble. We all get ourselves in trouble when we wander from the path of your commandments. Uh, this, this stuff has consequences and has rippling effects. It not only affects nations, it affects individuals. And undoubtedly, there are many, many guys in here that are feeling the pressure and feeling the weight and, and are feeling hemmed in. And when that uh, we get when we get that constricted, it's hard for us to uh, it's hard for us to breathe. It's hard for us to have joy because of the pressure and because of the weight. But we thank you in the midst of this that uh, you're in charge of our lives. We thank you that you really do run the world. All of this happens for a reason, and it happens that you might get the attention of those who are not paying attention. We as Christians are not exempt from hardship and from suffering. We, we want to be mindful when these things occur. And we also, Lord, know that you have offered us your peace. And what a wonderful thing peace is, even when things are falling apart, and even when things are happening for which we have no explanation. So tonight our eyes are on you. There are times when we're absolutely overwhelmed. There was that situation in 2 Chronicles 20 where that great horde that of, of, of hundreds of thousands were, was making its way up from En Gedi to Jerusalem. And, and they had no chance. They just had no chance of defeating these guys. And that king cried out to you and 
He said, Lord, there's nothing we can do. We are powerless against this great horde. But our eyes are on you. And that's what we say tonight. Our eyes are on you. Not on the pressures. Not on the stresses. Not on the worries. They're, they're all there, but our eyes are on you. We look to you. We have nowhere else to go. We look to you. We look to your promises. We, we ask you to save us. We ask you to make a way for us. The psalmist said, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. We thank you for salvation that Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. And we thank you that not only have you saved us from our sin, but we thank you that you continue to save us. You save us as we walk through life. You save us from things we're not even aware of. Uh, we, we are aware of certain dangers. We're aware of certain pressures. But there are things we don't even see that are out there. So, Lord, the, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. We pray tonight that our focus would be on you. We pray, Lord, that we would not get panicky and start taking shortcuts, thinking that that's the way we'll get out from under the pressure. We want to trust in you completely and totally. We pray that you'll instruct us tonight as we continue to look at David's life. Uh, we relate to David because he was flawed, just to, as we are flawed. Uh, he loved you, how desperately he needed you, how many mistakes he made, just as we have. So thank you that his story is in your book. Thank you that we can learn from his life. And thank you that as your grace was sufficient for him, it is sufficient for us. Encourage us with these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you a word. The word is paraprosdokian. P-A-R-P-R-O-S-D-O-K-I-A-N-S. Paraprosdokian. What is a paraprosdokian? A paraprosdokian is a figure of speech in which the later part or the latter part of a sentence or phrase is surprising or unexpected in a way that causes the reader or listener to reinterpret or reframe the first part. It is frequently used for humorous or dramatic effect. For this reason, it is extremely popular among comedians and satirists. Uh, it was popular with Winston Churchill. A paraprosdokian. A figure of speech in which the latter part of a sentence or phrase is surprising or unexpected in a way that causes the reader or listener to reframe or reinterpret the first part. So let me give you an example. There's a comedian by the name of Stephen Wright. He's a master of this. I'll give you two of his. Number one, if you were going to shoot a mime, would you use a silencer? Here's the second paraprosdokian from Stephen Wright. After they make styrofoam, what do they ship it in? 
Here's another one from someone who's anonymous. I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather, not screaming and yelling like the passengers in his car. I used to be indecisive. Now I'm not so sure. <laughs> now here's one that I think could be the motto of the man that we're going to study tonight. The man that we're going to study tonight, and if you're with us for the first time, we've been doing a study on the life of David. But we're looking at David's life through the lives of other men that played a role in his life. Uh, someone said, no man is an island. And that's true. We all uh, live in relationships. There are people in our lives who are our friends. There are people in our lives who are our enemies. There are people in our lives that uh, help us. There are people in our lives that uh, attempt to hinder us. But uh, as a way of brief review, as we've mentioned probably every week we've done this study, uh, all of these individuals that come into our lives are part of God's toolbox that God uses to develop us and develop character. If God is providential over our lives, and he is providential, and uh, the hairs in our head are numbered, that means God is in the details of our lives. Uh, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God has a plan for each of our lives. The, the, the plans extend to the smallest details of our lives even to the people that are in our lives, even to the relationships. Some of these people have positive influences in our lives. Others uh, have negative influences, just like certain tools. Some tools are positive. They'll build up. They'll lift up. And if you've got a flat tire, you're, you're hoping you've got a jack in that car. A jack is a wonderful instrument because it'll help you lift a vehicle you couldn't lift on your own. But not every uh, tool uh, lifts. Some tools uh, cut. Some tools hammer. Uh, some tools file. Uh, so are people. We're going to look at a guy tonight. You've probably heard his name. Um, but he, he, isn't, he isn't real prominent. Uh, but you find him throughout the pages of Scripture in David's life, coming in and coming out. Uh, he's not as well known as... Um, as uh, Samuel, he's not as well known as Saul. His name is Joab. An interesting, interesting guy. I, I think if there, was, there would be a motto to Joab's life, it would be another paraprosdokian. And I would offer this to you. I think this would fit the life of Joab. The last thing I want to do is hurt you but you're still on my list. <laughs> Joab was not a guy to mess with. Now, who was Joab? A lot of scriptures. We're going to survey his life tonight. Uh, let's start with, uh, let's go to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. As we're going to 1 Chronicles 11, I will tell you this, that uh, Joab was a nephew of David, Although they were approximately the same age, David had seven older brothers, but he also had an older sister. Joab uh, was one of her three sons. 
So he was in close proximity to David age-wise. Um, we really see Joab, and we see um, his character come out in an event that happened in First Chronicles. Uh, David is the second king. For years and years, he was being pursued by Saul. Uh, Saul is dead. Now uh, the nation is fragmented, and slowly but surely, it's beginning to be uh, united under David, but it's going to take a number of years. Once the nation, the tribes get together, and they begin to be reunited, something happens. Verse 4 of First uh, Chronicles 11. Then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is, Jabus. And the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. So the Jebusites, really, uh, the, the, what we know as Jerusalem, that was their city. And they had been there a long, long time. If, you've, uh, if you have a chance to go to, the, to Israel, you should take it. And if you've been there, you can picture Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits up high, sits on a... On a on a hill, sits up on a bluff. Uh, Jerusalem would be hard to take. It was hard to take because of the topography of the land. And these Jebusites had built a formidable city. Um, sits, on this, sits on this hill, sits on this bluff, yet all the way around the, the land of, of Jerusalem, it immediately then, you have the land which everything was built upon, and then it immediately drops off, very severely, actually. Um, uh, maybe drops down three, four hundred feet at certain areas, pretty sharply, and then it levels out for maybe, I don't know, 100, 100 yards, maybe 150 yards, something like that, and then it begins to go right back up. On the east side, um, just on the east side. So it's, well, here's what I'm going to say. All the way around, so it's like a moat. And you've got to sit up high. On the east side, it would drop down, and then it would go like this, and then you go up here, and then right about here is the Garden of Gethsemane. You see? And then you go a little higher is what we call the Mount of Olives. It's not all that far distance-wise. There's, there's not a huge gap between the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and the city of Jerusalem. But it's like this, and it's steep. So it, 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 it's, it's hard to charge. It's, it's hard to invade. It's hard to fight. Um, the Jebusites owned it. And it was quite a site, and it was quite a city. Uh, it was self-contained. Uh, great springs of water underneath, so you could stand off a siege. In fact, if you go today you can see the extensive tunneling that was done. Uh, 20 years ago, they hadn't uncovered it, but now you can walk underneath the city, and you can see the extensive tunneling uh, that uh, would capture the, the springs of water, take it up, uh, formidable walls. Basically, at this particular time, it was impregnable. You couldn't get in. But it was centrally located. Uh, the nation, all the tribes now were united, and it was the ideal spot to put the capital. So David decides he's going to take it. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not enter here. Well, he's going to enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David had said, whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be chief, chief and commander. 
Joab, the son of Zeruiah, that's David's sister, went up first, so he became chief. Joab became the commander-in-chief of David's armies. Why? Well, this was tailor-made for him. Uh, interesting guy, uh, multifaceted individual. Um, Herbert Lockyer has a great uh, summary of, of Joab, kind of a complicated guy. Uh, Herbert Lockyer begins by, his section on Joab is, is subtitled, The Man Who Was Overambitious. Listen to what he has to say. Joab was the first person to be thought of in Joab's mind. His apparent devotion to David had one objective, namely that he himself should have first place. Uh, this, this guy was a warrior, this guy was brave, this guy was courageous. And you say, well, you're pulling a lot out of this. I mean, that, well, this is pulled out of a lot of different scriptures. I'm just giving you a head start on where we're going with this guy. And every time you look at a passage uh, uh, concerning Joab, almost every time, you get this sense that he was driven by ambition, and it was ambition and loyalty primarily to himself. Uh, I'm just giving you a hint of what's there because... Notice that David said in verse 6, whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be what? Chief and commander. Well, see, that's what, that's what uh, Joab was driven for. He was driven to be a chief. He was driven to be a commander. He was driven to be in charge. He was driven to be in control. That was his whole life. So would he go first? Yeah, because he wanted to be first. Um, he goes on and says, Joab loved himself. He murdered those who stood in the way of his preeminence as the leader of Israel's army. Uh, Alexander White, the great Scottish pastor, in his work on Joab, said that had it not have been for David, Joab would have climbed up himself into the throne of Israel and been king. Um, interesting guy. Interesting guy. There are facets to him, and you think, solid, solid guy. But man, there's, a, there's an undercurrent to this guy's life that, that gave away what was really in his heart. If you recall in our study uh, on Saul and uh, David, we, we made the contrast between an authentic leader and a synthetic leader. And we said that a, an authentic leader is someone who has a heart for leadership, an authentic leader is someone who wants to be a leader. Uh, they're gifted to be a leader, but they also, their motivation is to serve. Um, Jesus came not to be served, but he came to serve. Um, we, we live in an age of authentic leaders and synthetic leaders. Saul was the synthetic leader. Saul looked like a leader. Saul was the biggest guy in Israel. Paul, uh, Saul had those chiseled good looks. He just looked like he knew what he was doing, but he never had a heart for leadership. He was appointed the first king. But in his heart, he was not a servant of the king. He always was looking out for number one. He, he was always first. It was always about Saul. Uh, he, he had a, out of the blocks, he had an okay start, but then he quickly began to show his character. And he was always in rebellion to what God said. He was always in rebellion to what Samuel said. Because it was all about him. It was about him. It was about self. 
Now, that's the way that Joab is. Uh, just giving you a head start. Let's kind of do a survey here real quickly of, uh, of Joab. But before we do that, I need to point something out. When David appointed Joab as commander-in-chief because he said, whoever goes in there first and takes it. And this guy took it. He, he, uh, he just wasn't a Navy SEAL. He was leading the SEALs. He, he, he somehow got up that wall. He somehow got inside that impregnable force, and, and he took them down. He led the charge. Um, so he had great courage, and he had uh, great tenacity, but uh, there was something underneath him that was very dark that was driving him. And really, for the rest of his life, and you see this from time to time as you look through the years of David and his interaction with Joab. There were times when, when David had to look back on that decision to put him in that position and absolutely regret it because Joab kept pulling him back to a place David didn't want to go. Uh, David Jeremiah, in his book, I Never Thought I'd See the Day, which is worth reading, tells the story of... Um, I'll just read it to you. Jeremiah writes, Sir William Edward Perry was an English naval officer and record-setting explorer of the Arctic and an evangelical Christian. He made one of the very first attempts to reach the North Pole. Uh, this would be in the early 1800s, mid-1800s. And in so doing, he penetrated farther north than any previous explorer, a record that stood for nearly 50 years. At one point, uh, on one of his trips to the Arctic, Perry and his men were pushing hard, trekking across the ice towards the pole. At one point, he stopped and recalculated his position by the stars, then continued pushing north. Hours later, they stopped, absolutely exhausted. Again, Admiral Perry calculated his position, and he discovered something absolutely unbelievable. They were actually farther south than when they had made their previous calculation. Perry was an expert in astronomy. Uh, astronomical observations and calculations. He actually wrote a book on the subject. So a mistake on his part was not likely. He eventually discovered the problem. He and his team had been on a gigantic ice flow that was actually moving south faster than they were trekking north. It was a classic example of the old one-step-forward, two-step-backward routine. They're on an ice flow. Silently, it's moving the wrong direction. They had no clue. When I read that, I thought, man, that's Joab in David's life. Joab kept pulling David back in a direction David didn't want to go. And there are people that come into our lives, and they, and they have this effect. They, uh, they can be winsome. They can appear to be loyal. They can appear to be friends. They can appear to be on our side, but there's something underneath the surface that keeps pulling us down in a direction we don't want to go. And whenever you're around them, you feel this pull the wrong way. Joab was this kind of guy. Um, an old scholar by the name of Osterley gave a summary of Joab's career and his life and what it was that he did. I'm just going to give this to you. Number one. Joab was a skilled general. And this is proven by the number of victories that he gained. So when you look at his whole life, along with David, 
This guy, this guy was pretty darn good militarily. Victory after victory. We're not going to look at him in detail, but his victories are found in 2 Samuel 2, beginning with verse 12. They're found again in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Found again in 2 Samuel 11, 1. Found again in 2 Samuel 12, verses 26 to 29. Found again in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 4 and following. And then in 1 Chronicles 11, verses 6 through 9. Uh, Israel was always at battle. Joab was always leading. And he pretty much was always successful. So he was a skilled general with a lot of victories under his belt. Here's number two. He was guilty of vindictiveness and ruthless cruelty. He was known to commit cold-blooded murder when it was his, to his advantage to do so. I want to show you a couple of events where this happens. And you really see what was in this guy's heart. And you really see um, what was it that, uh, that made this guy tick. Which you see takes me back to the uh, uh, paraprosdokian that I used in regard to Joab. The last thing I want to do is hurt you. But you're still on my list. He was a guy you didn't want to cross. He was a guy that was driven by something called selfish ambition. Um, let's go ahead and turn to James chapter 3. We'll get a glimpse of what was in this guy's heart. This guy can be somewhat confusing because as you look at his life and you look at his interaction with, uh, with David, uh, it seems like he was very, very loyal to David. At, at least it looks that way on the surface. But there was a reason he was loyal to David. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure his mother, when he was uh, growing up and when she saw David anointed as the next king of Israel, I'm sure she said to Joab and her other two boys, you want to hitch your wagon to David because good David's going places. And uh, that's in essence what happened. Uh, David was his ticket to the power which he uh, thirsted and lusted after. There is a passage in James chapter 3, and it says this, beginning with verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his... Now watch this. Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. What's in somebody's heart comes out in their behavior. Um, interesting to me, with the death of Steve Jobs uh, and then Isaacson's biography coming out at the same time, uh, th there's a lot of discussion about Steve Jobs these days. Um, and uh, obviously a very gifted guy, but obviously also very ruthless. Uh, John Ortberg is a pastor in Silicon Valley at Menlo Park Prez, and he was writing this week about uh, Steve Jobs and uh, his remarkable life. He says this, somebody has said that 10 years ago we had Bob Hope, Johnny Cash, and Steve Jobs. Now we have no hope, no cash, and no jobs. <laughs> Very insightful. In the same article, though, 
he also refers to someone else who died the same week that Steve Jobs did, and that's a guy by the name of Al Davis. He says he was a kid from Brooklyn, not a particularly gifted athlete, but by sheer tenacity, he became the head coach and general manager of the Oakland Raiders at a younger age than anyone else in professional football history. Um, in the last years, Davis kind of got to be, a, in a sense, kind of a joke. But early on, he was a force to be reckoned with. Uh, he, he was an incredible coach. And then he was a general manager. And then he was commissioner of the American Football League and forced Pete Rozelle and the NFL to merge. And they didn't want to do it. He goes on and he says, uh, in an occupation full of the toughest people in the world, nobody was tougher than Al Davis. Just win, baby. He willed the Raiders to five Super Bowls. He achieved such prominence that followers around the country called themselves Raider Nation. NFL Films rated the top 10 feuds of all time, and the number one feud was Al Davis versus the entire National Football League. <laughs> he could be extraordinarily generous, but he was not given the false modesty or self-doubt. When New York Yankees boss George Steinbrenner died about a year ago, Al Davis said this, I judge sports figures based on individual achievement, team achievement, and contributions to the game. George was right up there with me at number one. <laughs> and he was dead serious. That's Joab. Absolutely, that's Joab. Notice uh, James chapter 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, and we're going to see that in Joab's life, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, what, what wisdom? This selfish ambition. There's two kinds of ambition. There's a positive ambition. Um, you teach your kids. You know, you work hard, you don't take shortcuts, you don't cheat, you're a hard worker, you put in a full day's work for a full day's pay. You know what? So it's been true historically in this country. If you do that, if you pull your weight, you know, you can, you can achieve. Uh, that's a healthy ambition. You can provide for your family. There's a right kind of ambition. Paul said, we make it our ambition to please the Lord. That's the right kind of ambition. So that means everything you do, uh, the Bible says the eye of the Lord is in every place. So if you want to please the Lord, you know that the Lord is watching. You know that you're living your life before Him. You know whatever kind of work you do, you're really doing your work for the Lord. Uh, what does Colossians say? Uh, um, thank you, that's what I was after. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So the Lord sees the, the, the caliber of work and the kind of work that we do. Um, but if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, watch this, is not that which comes down from above. But this is earthly. It is natural. It is demonic. Selfish ambition is demonic in its nature. For, well, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Years ago at Dallas Seminary, I took a course from Bill Lawrence, and he was talking about selfish ambition. 
Uh, he started with ambition, and he said, ambition is a political term that came to mean promise them anything but get their vote. Interesting. The idea is that of presenting yourself as a public servant, which actually being a very private servant, while actually being a very private servant with a very small constituency. In other words, you want to show yourself, I'm a public servant, but actually you're very private, and you have a, constitu a constituency of which you're concerned, which involves one person, which is you. He goes on and he says, to be selfishly ambitious, to have your ambition centered on yourself. That's the concept. Selfish ambition is an inordinate desire for position, power, and or possessions. But he goes on and says, possessions don't have to be a part of this. A man may be committed to a simple lifestyle and still be selfishly ambitious. A man can be self-giving in one area and self-grasping in another. It's the inordinate desire for position, for power, for control, to be number one. Years ago, man, how many years ago was this? This is my first year of marriage. It was 35 years ago. And I'm a youth pastor at a church in California. And I'm finishing out seminary. And uh, I had a buddy that lived not too far away. We just moved to this area. And he said, hey, come on down. You know, we'll, we'll have lunch. And he was working for a guy in Southern California that had a church that was just taken off. And uh, so I got down there and he said, hey, uh, we're going to have lunch with, I'll call this guy Joe. And 35 years ago, this guy was the latest, hottest uh, young preacher with a fast-growing church. And uh, this, it, this church was growing like crazy. So I said, fine. You know, so we went and had lunch with this guy. And uh, this guy had a lot to say. I mean, he had a lot to say. And uh, usually they do. He... Uh, Hey, everything was going his way. And it kind of dominated the conversation. I remember, though, I remember he uh, kept, he started talking about a book he had read. This is the best book I've ever read. Absolutely the best book I've ever read. And the guy talks about this, and the guy talks about this, and the guy talks about this. And uh, he said, I'm actually implementing some of this in the sermon series I'm doing. And I didn't catch the name of the book initially, but he, he mentioned the guy's name. And, and I said, what's the guy's name again? And he says, Rinker. And I said, what's the name of the book? He said, looking out for number one. So I went and got the book. And I read it uh, the next day. And that next night, Mary and I were having dinner, and we were talking. And I said, you know, Mary, I've been reading this book that this guy's so taken with. She said, yeah. He said, what do you think? And I said, I think this guy's going down. And he did. He did. He went down in flames. Um, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm no prophet, but anybody could have seen it. I mean, he was absolutely taken with this book, and virtually uh, every chapter was, was essentially anti-Bible in its message and in its approach. I, it was astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Um, this guy went down in flames, and he's been in the ash heap for I don't know how long. Incredibly gifted, very glib, very quick, 
as a young man was drawing thousands to hear him preach. But see, the problem is when you take shortcuts and you live off your gifts and don't develop your character, you're asking for it. I'm old enough now to see the guys that I went to seminary with and probably the two most gifted guys who you would have said, these are the guys who are going to make their mark. These are the guys who are going to do it. Uh, within 10 years, they were, uh, they were out because they'd been, they'd been disqualified morally. Things came easy to them. They could talk their way in and out of the, just about everything. But there was a streak. There was something underneath that they never dealt with. You've got to deal with your stuff. And we've all got our stuff. Everybody's got their stuff. And here's the thing. The Lord wants to deal with it. And the Lord puts us in situations where he forces us to deal with it, or we refuse to deal with it, we reject it, we, uh, we, 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 we talk our way out of it or lie our way out of it, and what happens is you can't do that forever. It's going to catch up with you. you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The thing that struck me about this guy looking out for number one, it was selfish ambition. Uh, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every, every evil thing. Uh, before long, his church was in a shambles. Why was his church in a shambles? Well, number one, because he was spending all this time with his secretary. Time that wasn't legitimate. Private time. He wouldn't take a trip. He wouldn't go speak unless she had a plane ticket to go with him. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Uh, Lawrence goes on and says, Ambition is self-centered. It divides and causes disputes. So when you want to take some other gal with you on a trip instead of your wife, that's going to cause a dispute. It's a matter of motives, self-centered motives. It's the fruit of the flesh. It seeks, seeks empty glory and lacks humility of mind and is one of the basic reasons for God's wrath. Ultimately, selfish ambition, catch this, is the ambition... Let me back up. This selfish ambition is the need to lead. It's the driving need to be number one. So in Joab's life, when you look at his life, were there some positive traits here and there? Yeah, but it was all under the guise of his heart. If I, if I have this positive trait and this positive trait, it will help me keep this position of power that I love. That I love. That's selfish ambition. The need to lead, the need to be number one. Flip over to 3 John 9. You got 1 John, you got 2 John, and then you got little 3 John here. It's very short, very brief. Verse 9 of 3 John. The Apostle John, who was hand selected, hand chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ, he's an apostle. The, the church is built on the cornerstone of Christ Jesus and the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So when John writes, it has authority. It's the word of God. I wrote something to the church. Watch this. But Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Normally, guys that have selfish ambition, guys who love to be first, don't listen to those in authority because they don't want to submit to anyone in authority because they think they ought to be in authority. That's Diotrephes. This is a church in the New Testament. Uh, years ago, 
Uh, A.T. Robertson was a Greek scholar in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. And this was like 80 years ago, 90 years ago. He wrote an article in the Southern Baptist Denomination Magazine on Diotrephes. A leader in the church who loved to be first, who would not accept the authority of the scriptures. And he received numerous letters from deacons across America who were upset with him for attacking them personally. Did you get that? He wrote an article in the denominational magazine about this guy, Diotrephes. He gets letters from guys who were functioning as deacons in Baptist churches who read it and said, how dare you criticize me? Yeah, is anybody home? I mean, you know. Uh, he says, for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren that they send out, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. This is the classic, a case could be made that Joab was the diatrophies of the Old Testament. He loved to be first. Now, I want to I prove it to you. Okay, I've been making all these accusations. Let's look at the proof. So let's go to uh, let's go to Second Samuel chapter three. I need to say this: well, whenever I read that passage in James about selfish ambition, and then I read about Diotrephes, who loved to be first among them, as I'm reading that, I'm always it's interesting because there are names that are coming to my mind of people I have encountered over the years that fit that description. You know what's interesting to me? My name never comes to mind. <laughs> Not me. Interesting, isn't it? But maybe my name should come to mind. See, it's easy to do these studies of these men and read them, oh, you know, I remember that guy, oh, that guy, man, this, this, that guy is just like this. Before we do 2 Samuel 3, go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Psalm 1, 9, 19, sorry. One of the dangers of studying an individual like this is that when you see the negative traits in his life, the danger is that you see these traits in the lives of other people, but you're blind to seeing them in your own life. In Psalm 19, David says in verse 12, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. What, you know what David is saying? David is saying we all have areas of sin in our lives that we don't recognize, but other people do. We've all got our blind spots. That's what concerns me about studying Joab. 
I can look at his life. I can see his flaws. I can even enumerate people that I know. And dadgummit, they've got the same flaws. They need it. I'm going to send them a CD. <laughs> they need to hear this message. I, can, I get several of them on my list. And my name never once comes up. That scares me. Because, see, I've got blind spots. I have sins of presumption. And so do you. So, see, it's the, the, the danger is that we just sit here, hear this, and apply it to other people's lives. The question is, as we go through this, Lord, and, and here's really you have to, how you have to study this. Lord, is there anything in this guy's life that's in my life that I'm not seeing? And you said it, Ronnie. Ask your wife. You really want to know? You really want to know? Then ask somebody who knows you well. You, you know a great question to ask your wife or to ask one of your adult kids? At some point, in all seriousness, is to ask them, what do you see in my life that I'm not seeing? What would be your greatest concern for me spiritually? Now, only do that if you want to play hardball. Only do that if you want to go deep. And only do that if you're really willing to listen. If you just want to keep it superficial, well, you wouldn't, ever, you wouldn't even bring it up. And it's not something you do all the time, but at certain times it might be appropriate. You see? Because people who love you can help you if you'll listen to them. But if you get defensive and if you get angry, well, uh, it's not going to go anywhere. Let's look at Joab. Second Samuel chapter 3. Now, here's what's happening in 2 Samuel, okay? So Saul dies. He's the first king. We've got, we got to get a run and start at this. Uh, does David immediately uh, unite the entire nation? No, that doesn't happen. Um, if you look at um, uh, 2 Samuel 2, verse 4, it says, Then the men of Judah came there and anointed David king over the house of Judah. So you've got all these tribes. You've got 12 tribes. So David starts out as the king of the tribe of Judah. But you've got 11 other tribes. You go down to verse 10, Ish-bosheth, and if you're looking for a name and your wife's pregnant, <laughs> check out Ish-bosheth. He'll be the only one in this class. I was one of 14 Steves in my second grade class. Steve F, Steve G, Steve... Ish-bosheth, no problem. Just Ish. Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel. And he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. So you had a split kingdom. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Look at chapter 3. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. We covered this a few weeks ago. David grew steadily stronger. The house of Saul grew weaker continually. Now there's a guy named Abner who was part of, uh, who, who served King Saul. And Abner is watching all this, all right? He's, he's on the side of Ish-bosheth. But he's watching this, and, and he's a general, and uh, he's sort of a diplomat, and he's, 
He's reading all this stuff. And what happens to him is that he says, you know what? David's getting stronger. Ishbosheth is getting weaker. We got to unite this nation. Verse 12 of, um, where am I? Three. Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over you. In other words, he's saying, hey, let's forget this split. You're the man that God's anointed. I see it now. Let's get it done. If, if you agree, I'll help you on our end. So he's trying to get the nation together, okay? Uh, verse 20, then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. You got a divided nation. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king. In other words, David, you're the guy. I'm for you. I'm behind you. That they may make a covenant with you and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So they got a treaty. They got an agreement. It's in place. All the wheels are moving to get all of the nation, all the tribes together under David. Everybody's good with this, but you got a problem. Uh, Joab was away in verse 22. Uh, Behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Watch Joab's reaction. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away and he is already gone? Watch him read the motives, misread the motives of Abner. You know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and learn of your going out and coming in to find out all that you're doing. In other words, this guy came in here to deceive you. He came in here to spy on you. He doesn't want to reunite the nation under you. And he immediately misreads and attributes to Abner motives that were not in the heart of his heart at all. Now, why does Joab do that? Because he has selfish ambition. Quite frankly, if you take a step back, the reason that he has such a problem with Abner is that Abner is his equivalent on the other side. He's a competitor. Once again, you've got the authentic leader, synthetic leader. What does Abner do? Let's do what's best for the nation. Let's do what's best. Let's get everybody together and let's get under David, God's anointed David. Abner is the authentic leader. Joab is the synthetic leader. Here comes Abner. Now what happens? Joab, whenever a synthetic leader meets an authentic leader, the synthetic leader gets threatened. And now the synthetic leader has got to destroy the authentic leader. It's what Saul tried to do with David. Now Joab is going to destroy Abner. Watch this. When Joab came out from David, verse 26, uh, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Surah, but David did not know it. What's going to happen, David doesn't have a clue about. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the middle of the gate to speak with him privately. Hey, Abner, you got a second? Uh, let's just go over here. I need to talk with you. And there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Now, what's that about? Well, when there had been war, one of Joab's brothers, Asahel, had pursued Abner. And Abner said, hey, 
I don't want, I, I, I don't want to take you on. Leave me alone. But this Asahel kept trying to kill Abner. And Abner said, don't bother me. Get out of here. I don't want to do this to you or your family. And this Asahel kept coming after him, kept threatening. And finally, in self-defense, Abner had to kill him because it was either kill him or be killed. It was self-defense. So because of that, Joab and his other brother want to kill Abner. Not only do they want to take revenge, but they got issues because his leadership is better than Joab's. Are you guys following me? So he kills him. It's sort of like in the old westerns, when you got uh, the guy goes into the saloon, all he wants is a drink, he's minding his own business, and some young punk kid who thinks he's a gunslinger comes in, and he's got a couple drinks under his belt, and he decides he's going to take on the old veteran, you know, Ben Johnson. And Johnson doesn't want to mess with him. And the kid says, finally the kid draws on him. And, you know, the old arthritic gunslinger, you know, pops him and kills him. And then suddenly he's got four brothers coming after the guy. Although it was in self-defense, that's what this is about. All right, watch 28. This was a grievous, cold-blooded murder that was incredible in its uh, severity. Watch this, Uh, 28, afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Now watch him publicly curse Joab for what he did. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and may there not fail from the house of Joab, one who has a discharge, one who is a leper, one who takes hold of a distaff, or one who falls by the sword, or one who lacks bread. Um, 31, then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird on sackcloth, and lament before Abner. And David walked behind the bier. You don't have any funerals in the Old Testament except this. David walked behind Abner and honored him and publicly cursed Joab for the cold-blooded murder. Um, Larry Richards points out four things about this. That Joab failed David in killing Abner. Number one, politically, the, mor- the murder could have jeopardized the support from the northern tribes that had so been recently drawn in by Abner. Okay, Abner wanted to get the whole nation under David. Did Joab care about that? No, he only cared about keeping his position of power. Why? Because it's selfish ambition. Secondly, David was mortified that the most prominent leader in his army had so blatantly violated God's laws. Uh, David had taken life in battle, but do you remember? Twice he had an occasion to kill Saul, and he didn't do it. He could have murdered Saul. He never did it. This was an absolute violation of thou shalt not murder. Number three, vengeance was the Lord's job and not man's. And once again, David had demonstrated that. Number four, legally, this was in Hebron, and Hebron was a city of refuge where such revenge was not permitted. So on every account, Joab ignored the word of God. Did he care? No, because he's looking out for number one. And he eliminates his prime competitor. Um, Now, here's here's what David should have done at this point. Here's what he should have done. Um, he should have cut him off. He should have eliminated Joab, and that's it. But he didn't. 
He didn't do it. Um, and it cost him big time. Go to 2 Samuel 11. We're going to do this quickly. There's a lot in these, you know, there's a lot on these guys and they're in and out of different events and all this. But, but suddenly some of this stuff starts coming into focus. I want you to see something. So 2 Samuel 11, it's David and Bathsheba. You know that story, right? He's up on the roof. She's down there. He sees her. He brings her in. So they spend the night together. Uh, and then unfortunately she gets pregnant. So David's pretty sharp. Well, let's get her husband back here. Uriah. Where's Uriah? He's out at battle. Okay, bring him back in and we'll cover this thing up. So give me your report, Uriah. Okay, good, wonderful. All right, you go home and spend the night with your wife. Well, Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife. He stayed outside. Why? Because he was a man of honor. And when they asked him about it, he goes, well, if my guys are still out there at battle and they can't be with their wives, I'm not going to be with my wife. Shoot. Kind of screwed up David's plan. So that night, David says, well, stick around. We'll throw a banquet. So he gets him drunk, and now he sends him back home. But he still won't sleep with his wife. So now David's in trouble because David's got to cover his sin that he slept with Bathsheba's wife and she's pregnant. So note verse 14 of chapter 11. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter, watch this, to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. What's this all about? David sends a death warrant for Uriah by Uriah's own hand in a sealed envelope, if you will, and has Uriah hand it to Joab. And what does Joab read? Place Uriah in the front line, verse 15, of the fiercest battle, and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. And that's what happened. Now, you know what's interesting? David knew Joab's character. And when David was in the worst spiritual condition of his life and trying to cover sin... His way out, when his plans fell apart, he knew Joab was in charge. He knew Joab's character. He knew that Joab was a, was a guy full of selfish ambition and not opposed to murder if it would accomplish his uh, designs. So he sends the letter to Joab, knowing full well that Joab won't have a problem with it. And indeed, that's what happens. Now, i got a question for you. Let's say the roles were reversed... And Joab was the husband of Bathsheba, and Uriah was the commander. Think about that. So in other words, Joab is given the letter, take this to the commander, who is Uriah. Uriah reads the letter from David, put this guy in the hottest place of battle, and then withdraw from him so that he may be killed. Do you think Uriah would have gone along with it? I don't think so, because a guy that had enough character not to sleep with his own wife when it was legitimate would not be a guy he was given to be an accessory to murder. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. You've got to be careful who you spend time with and who influences you. doesn't mean we don't have relationships with non-Christians. But you cannot let non-Christians or people that give lip service to being Christians, you cannot let them be in a place of um, influence in your life. Psalm chapter 1, real quick. 
you got to watch who you hang with. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That was Joab. That was Joab. Say, man, this is an unbelievable story. He was really an accessory to murder to Uriah, and then he was an accessory to murder prior to that to Abner. Yeah, and he's not done yet. Because David's gonna have, David has a son named Absalom. And Absalom was the most handsome guy in all of Israel. And if you turn real quickly to 2 Samuel 18, you'll say this. And what Absalom did was, uh, Absalom was this, you know, spoiled young kid, uh, had an amazing head of hair, the most beautiful hair in Israel. He was the most handsome man in all of Israel. And what he does is, he starts working the guys, he starts working the gates of Jerusalem, and he starts winning these guys and turning them against his father. Because he wants to be king. And at a certain point, he actually rebels against his father in Jerusalem, and David's got to leave Jerusalem to, 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 to save his own life. And what Absalom does is, where am I? Second what? Samuel 18? What, what he does is that he actually takes David's concubines and has sex with them in public to humiliate his father. So this is bad news stuff that's going on. So, so now they're going after Absalom. They, they, they've got to put down this rebellion. Note 2 Samuel 18, verse 5. They're, they're going to find Absalom. They're, they're going to they're stifle this rebellion. 18.5 of 2 Samuel. The king David charged Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard the king when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. All right? You hear, you hear the message, all right? Did Joab hear it? Yeah, they all heard it. Okay, watch this. Nine, uh, Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule. The mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule was under him, kept going. He was hanging by his hair, this wonderful hair. You guys that are bald, don't feel bad. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who had told him, Behold, you saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten pieces of silver in a belt. The man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king, in our hearing the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Protect for me the young man Absalom. Verse 14, Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. He took three spears in his hand thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet still alive in the midst of the oak. He murdered him. Because he'd always been a murderer. Do you see how David had to regret that he kept him on instead of dealing with him in the first place like he should have done? One more and we're done. Um, you see, Joab was loyal to a point. Just to a point. He was loyal as long as it served his interests. 1 Kings 1, verses 5 through 7. So now Absalom is dead. Absalom had rebelled against his father. Now who is going to succeed David as king of Israel? Solomon. It's not a trick question. Solomon. Go to 1 Kings 1, verse 5. Okay, now David's got all these, he's got all these kids running around because he's got all these women. He's got another son named Adonijah. You guys still with me? Are you? This is better than CSI, okay? Because it's true. 
Almost done. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. This is one of David's boys. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. So David's got another boy that wants to be king after Absalom's dead who tried to be king. Watch this. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? Hey, you fathers, sometimes you need to cross your boys. Even when they're young men, sometimes you need to cross them. You do it differently, but he's still your son, and if you see him going down a path he shouldn't be going, in an appropriate way, you need to check him. That's your job. Okay. His father never crossed him at any time by saying, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. When he had confirmed, watch this, with Joab. And with Abiathar the priest, and following Adonijah, they helped him. Helped him what? Decide he was going to be king. You see, Joab was loyal to a point. Here's what's happening. David's getting old. David's ready to die. Joab is picking his spots. Does he like Solomon? No, Solomon's too strong. Solomon's too good of a leader. So what does he do? He throws in his lot with Adonijah. So Adonijah is throwing a party because he's declared himself king. Um, and as he is throwing this party, they send word to Nathan, and they go to the king and said, Hey, did you say that Adonijah was going to be king? He says, No, I want uh, uh, Solomon to be king. Well, Adonijah's got a party over here going on, and he's going to rebel and be king. And he said, let's go ahead and inaugurate Solomon right now. So they start inaugurating Solomon. They start pounding the drums. And Adonijah is over there at the Ritz-Carlton in Bethlehem out on the patio enjoying lunch with all of his guys. And they start hearing these sounds. And if you look at uh, the rest of Kings 1 and chapter 2, what happens is they hear the drums and they say, what's going on? Oh, they're, they're, they're anointing Solomon as king. So what happens? If you look at uh, uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 49, then all the guests of Adonijah were terrified, and they arose, and each went on his way. And Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, and he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. He figured if he took hold of the horns of the altar that he would be free. You know who later took hold of the, arms, the, the horns of the altar? Joab. And you know what? There's so much stuff here. Uh, if you look at chapter 2, and I'm done. I've said that 14 times. And I kind of mean I'm done, but I'm not really. Chapter 2, verse 5. He's charging Solomon, David is, as he's going to be king. Verse 5. Now you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. Watch this. What he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner to Amasa, the son of Jether. We didn't even talk about that, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war in peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt about his waist and on the sandals on his feet. So according to his wisdom, do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. So you know what Solomon did? When Joab took the horns of the altar because he thought it'd be safe, Solomon sends a guy in there and says, cut him to pieces. It's something that should have been done years ago. Bad company corrupts good morals. So let me ask you a question in passing. Two questions. One of them we've already asked. We'll get it later. Here's the first question. What underlying traits in your life do you need to ask the Lord to make clear to you? We've all got blind spots. 
We've all got them. And you know, it's best that we ask the Lord to show them so that he can save us from them. Here's the second thing. Who are the people in your life that are influencing you? Who are the people in your life that you're listening to? The Bible says, he who walks with wise men will be wise. The wisest thing you can do in life is to walk with godly men. Not that we don't have relationships with those that don't know Christ, but that we're careful about those who influence us. It's the safe way. It's the wise way. It keeps us on the path of righteousness. Let's bow our heads. Father, in a day of synthetic leaders, we would desire to be authentic leaders. Help us to learn from this Joab. Um, Lord, we, we all have a desire to be first. We all love the, love the, the, the spots of preeminence. Uh, in our families, you called, us, you called us, Lord, not to be served. You called us to serve. So give us wisdom, Lord. And I pray, that, uh, I pray that we would listen to those around us who love us. When, when two or three people who love us say the same thing, may you help us to listen and respond so that we can grow. That's how you get through to us. Thank you for mercy and grace. We've all fallen short. But when we turn to you, there is massive forgiveness in Christ. Encourage us with these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.